Well, welcome to Bayou City. We're glad you're here. Why don't you tell that person on your right, glad you're here. Tell the person on your left, James chapter four, one through three. That's where we are today. We've been making our way through the book of James. If you had the power to fix one thing in your life, what would you fix? You know, some, some of you ladies would say, I would actually like to fix that thing that my husband has been promising to fix for the last six months. That's what I would like fix or something about the way you look or some work situation or some person in your life that you wish would go away. My thing would be if I could fix one thing after like family and health and blah, 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 all that, all that important stuff, I would really love hair. Honestly, I would love <laughs> hair. And, uh, and, you know, nobody told me it was coming. Like nobody loved me enough to pull me aside and say, hey, God loves you so much. We love you so much, but your hair is retreating from your head because they have options. They have options. You can take pills that actually will keep you from losing your hair. But by the time I found out about those, it was too late and too costly. And then they have the commercials, you know, the men's hair club, like that's a real thing. And about the time that I was losing it, but, but still was trying to rock it a little bit, I saw a commercial and I thought, well, it's worth a try. And so I made an appointment and I went in and it was kind of like a doctor's appointment. They took this microscope thing that they had on a cord and they wave it around the top of your head and you can see that image on a screen, big screen right there in the office. And long story short, we've used all this technology and this amazing presentation to tell you what you already knew, which is that your hair does not like you and uh, you're going bald. And I'm like, I know that. That's, that's why I'm here. And he's like, but we got options for you. And so I was loving it. I love options. I especially love options that mean hair for me. And so he said, what we do is we'll cut around some of the rest of your head where you have hair. We'll just sew it to the top of your head. And that's you, some of you are grossed out by that, but I was still in at that point. I was like, take whatever you got to take, do whatever you got to do. And then he slid the price across the table and I was already priced out, like session one priced out, couldn't afford it, it wasn't worth it. And so here I am today. And you know, every once in a while, some man will come up to me and and say, uh, or some woman, or Amanda, or whoever, not a woman, but Amanda, uh, will say, um, <laughs> you know, you look better, better without it. I like you better without it. And the first thing I say is like, I love you so much, and you are a liar. Those two things, <laughs> I love you, appreciate the liar. And then some men will have the audacity to come up to me and say, man, I wish I was you. Because I got this thick thing up here, and it's just annoying. <laughs> it's annoying. I got to wash it and I got to style it. And you know how much gel costs and it's just, oh, I wish I could be you. And my response is, where do you want me to punch you in the face? <laughs> you want me to punch you in the nose, in the eyes, in the chin? Because you're getting punched in the face, but I'm going to give you the option of where that's going to happen. It is the one thing that I would fix about me, I think, you know, apart from family and friends and, you know, all those kinds of things. But we all have that. We all have something Something's shallow, but something serious and unfulfilled longing in our heart. And man, an unfulfilled longing in our heart is a force of nature in our lives. It is a powerful surge that oftentimes cannot be resisted. And what we're going to see in the scripture today 
James chapter four, verses one through three, is that unfulfilled longing is going to take one of two paths. Either you're gonna take that unmet desire and put it into the hands of God, or it's gonna become a weapon in your hands. Those are your options. I can put my unfulfilled longing in the hands of God, or I can let it lead to a fracture and pain in my relationships. James chapter four, verses one through three. What is the source of the wars and the fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you may spend it on your desires for pleasures. So four questions we're, we wanna ask ourselves. This is what we're gonna leave with today. When you and I have unfulfilled longing in our hearts, four questions to ask. Question number one, has this longing created something unhealthy in me? Has this longing created something unhealthy in me? Question number two, have I asked God? Question number three, what is my motive? And question number four, God, can you use it? Can you use this unfulfilled longing in me? Question number one, has this longing created something unhealthy in me? There may be a need for me to connect the dots because what does fighting and quarreling and coveting and murder, what does that have to do with asking God? Well, the common denominator there is there's an unmet longing in the heart because he says in verse two, you desire and do not have. And then he says again at the end of the verse, you do not have because you do not ask. So there is a sense in which they don't have. And sometimes that not having leads to fighting with other people. And sometimes it leads to asking God. So question number one, has this longing created something unhealthy in me? The last sentence from last week of chapter three says in verse 18, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so he says, this is righteousness. We, we sow peace by those who make peace, but then he immediately follows it up with what is the source of the wars and fights among you? So they're fighting with one another. So he's saying, this is what you should be doing. You should be sowing righteousness by sowing peace by those who make peace, but really you're fighting among yourselves. And he, and he says that the, the cravings within us are at war. It means that our craving, our desire to have, they become soldiers of war. You know, a dream is a powerful thing. A dream can make your heart come alive or it can make your heart sick. And some of us are in that spectrum at one point or another. It's either making you alive and it's giving you energy and life and joy, this longing that you have, this desire that you have, this dream that you have, or it's doing the opposite. And when it does the opposite, when it begins to make our hearts sick, we turn on other people. Because when you're conflicted on the inside, it won't be long before you're conflicted on the outside. When there's turmoil on the inside, very quickly, there's gonna be turmoil on the outside. And we've all been there. We've all had a terrible day, wish that we had had a better day, and then we take that bad day out on somebody else. We don't keep it to ourselves. We unleash it on our kids. We unleash it on our wife. We unleash it on our roommates. We unleash it on the poor person who's providing a meal for us, serving us, a waiter or a waitress. That unmet desire becomes a weapon 
in our hands. He, he says that you covet and murder. And some Bible commentators, they kind of argue about whether he's being literal, like there's actually literally murder, murder going on, or he means it in the way that his half-brother Jesus meant it when he said, if you hate someone, then you are already guilty of murder. But there are some real-life examples in the scripture of where coveting and unmet desire actually led to murder. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 21. 1 Kings 21. In verse one, it says, sometime passed after these events, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard. It was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Now, Ahab was a wicked king. He was a terrible human being. In fact, in the verses right before Chapter 21, God has sent a prophet to rebuke him. Just the lowest of the lowest, low, the terrible leader, a terrible king, a terrible man. So Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard so I can have it for a vegetable garden since it is right next to my palace. I will give you a better vineyard in its place or if you prefer, I will give you its value in silver. So Ahab says, I want your vineyard. I want it for my own use. I'm gonna plant some vegetables there. It's right next door. It makes sense. I'm willing to pay you for it or in fact, just give you another vineyard. But Naboth, verse three, said to Ahab, I will never give my father's inheritance to you. So Naboth says, it's not about the money. It's not about the vineyard. This was my father's land and probably his father before that. And no, I'm, I'm not giving it to you. So look what happens. Verse four, so Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him. He had said, I will not give you my father's inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned his face away and didn't eat any food. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said to him, why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, he replied. Now listen to his response. If this doesn't sound like a whiny a toddler, then I don't know what is. I told him, give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy, for I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So Jezebel comes in and says, you are a weak man, act like a king, and I'm gonna handle it. And so she hatches a plan, and just a few verses later, Naboth is dead, and Ahab takes his vineyard. But look at the process. The process was a longing, unfulfilled. I want the vineyard. You can't have the vineyard. And then it says he goes in and is resentful and angry. That's stop number one for an unfulfilled longing resentment and anger. You get angry. I deserve that. That should be mine. Why is that not mine? And then you get resentful because you look around and other people have those things. And even though they don't have anything to do with your situation, even though they don't have any influence over why you don't have that thing, you resent them because they have what you want. That's stop number one. Then stop number two is a deep sadness. He lay down on his bed, verse four, turned his face away and didn't eat any food. So he's like, I just want to lay in bed. We've all been there. We've all had such a terrible day. Our heart has become sick because our dream is not coming true. And all we want to do is we want to sleep. We don't want to talk to anybody. We don't want to eat. We just want to sleep because of the depth of sadness. And then an opportunity happens. That's the next stop. 
Jezebel comes in and says, uh, I'll handle this for you. And then someone is hurt. Anger and resentment, sadness, opportunity, someone is hurt. And when we have unfulfilled longing, if we don't turn to the right place, we just rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. I'm angry and resentful. I'm sad. I can hurt this person. I can lash out at this person. I can punish this person. And we just are in this repetitive cycle. And what starts as an innocent desire for something, we look down and now we have weapons in our hands that we're using to sow strife, sow dissension, slander, gossip, all of that coming from a place of unmet desire. Has this longing in you, has it created something unhealthy? Question number two, have I asked God? Look what he says next. You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. You do not have because you do not ask. Have I asked God? We shouldn't just blow past that today. That is a huge opportunity for us. A huge opportunity to ask God for whatever we want. Philippians says, with everything, with prayer and petition, in everything, big stuff, small stuff, we have the amazing opportunity to ask God. But let's examine when we ask, or at least let's examine when I ask. And I'm hoping that you're along the ride with me. I ask when I've already tried to do it myself and I can't. Then I start to pray. I ask when it's an emergency situation that's out of my control. And I know it right from the beginning. Someone is sick. Diagnosis coming. You know, diagnosis hanging in the air. Uh, job situation. Out of my control. Immediately. Emergency. And then usually my f- prayers are filled and your prayers are filled with something so bland and so vague that we barely remember them later. It's like chicken noodle soup. Chicken noodle soup is good at only one moment in your life and that is when you are sick. No one has ever craved chicken noodle soup in a healthy way. Should I have Shipley's Donuts for breakfast this morning? Or no, I'm just gonna stick with a can of chicken noodle soup. Nobody's ever put those two things in the same sentence. Should I go and eat delicious Mexican food? Or should I have some chicken noodle soup? Unless that chicken noodle soup is drowned in cheese, then I am not interested in chicken noodle soup. Why? Because it's bland. It's vague. It, 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 doesn't t- it doesn't have any taste. It serves a purpose, but it doesn't have any taste. And our prayers are like that. Because you're gonna go out to eat, you're gonna go home, there's gonna be the food moment where everything comes and somebody's gonna awkwardly look around and go, well, we already started eating, but we just went to church, so we should pray. And, and so somebody's gonna pray a prayer and at that prayer, somebody's gonna say, and uh, God bless this food. Great prayer, awesome prayer. Better than saying, you know, God curse this food, bless this prayer, Great prayer, but not one time in my life, and I bet not one time in your life, have you ever been leaving the restaurant and go, oh my gosh, that food was so blessed. (laughs) You don't start eating and then say to the waiter, hey, you gotta tell the chef, man, this food is so blessed. Why? Because blessed this food is so vague in our hearts and so bland, we don't even bother remembering that we actually prayed that and therefore we don't bother to celebrate it because it was just a prayer that didn't really mean that much to us. And so when I look at the asking that I do, most of it falls into one of those three things. And I think that's why not very many of us are seeing the yeses or the amount of yeses that we would like in our lives. 
If you're sitting here today and I'm sitting here today going, man, I don't feel like God ever says yes to me. It may be because these are the prayers that we're praying. It would be like a college student skipping the whole semester, showing up for the final with the book that they were assigned, being there 10 minutes early before the final is passed out, flipping through, trying to absorb as much information as possible, then failing the test and blaming it on the book. Hey, you need to get a better book this time. It didn't help me. It didn't do for me what you said it would do. And I think that's why most of us are disappointed with our yeses because most of us are not really asking in the way that we've been given permission. Have I asked God? You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, keep asking, keep knocking, keep searching. And when we ask, we need to make sure that we don't disconnect the ask from the keep. Because God in his wisdom has wired up prayer in a way that endurance is usually necessary. I see this with my kids, uh, Jackson and Annabeth, their birthdays are both in February. And so Annabeth was two weeks ago and Jackson's is this week. And so as they were making their requests for birthday presents, I never buy them something that they just ask for one time, even if it's an unbelievable gift. Because they'll just be watching TV and there's amazing commercials on. So they'll say, I want that. Or the neighbor will have something. I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. I don't listen to that. What I listen to is the things that they ask for more than once. That's how I know what they really want. Otherwise, they're saying, hey, it'd be nice to have this. If given the choice between having this and not having this, yeah, I I want it. But it's the things that they repeat that are going to make them the happiest in that moment when they open it. It's the things that they just asked for one time that they're not even playing with by the end of the day. So there is an endurance that is necessary. So if any of us asked for something one time and it didn't happen and we packed in our prayer bags and went home, we missed the point. Because the repeating of it clarifies for us what we actually need and what we actually want. The other thing that the enduring peace does for us is it requires faith. And that's what God is after in you. He's after faith. That's what pleases him, Hebrews chapter 11 says. And it doesn't require any faith for me to ask for something one time. God, give me hair right now. Did it happen? No. Didn't require any faith to do that. It would require a lot of faith to ask for it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Some of you are not getting your yeses because you quit too early. Have I asked God? Question number three, what's my motive? Verse three, you ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly so that you may spend it on your desires for pleasure. That phrase, you ask wrongly, it is the idea of something being sick or diseased. Sometimes we don't get the yes that we want because our ask is infected. It's diseased, it's sick, and what infection does it have so that you may spend it on your desires for pleasure or your evil desires. He mentions that same phrase in chapter one, if you remember it from a few months ago. In verse 14 of chapter one, he says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed 
by his own evil desires. So here he's saying we're tempted away and led away from God by our evil desires. And in chapter four, he's saying that sometimes we don't get what we want because what we're asking for is actually just to feed our evil desires. And so some of us get a no sometimes because we're asking God for things that would actually lead us away from God. We're asking God to give us gifts that will actually harm our relationship, harm our fellowship, harm our closeness with him. And he is not going to give you that. He is not going to give you a gift that would make you more obsessed with the gift than him. He's not gonna give you a present that would actually make you think about him, worship him, glorify him less. But sometimes, many times, it's not created something unhealthy in us. Our longing has been given to God. We have a pure motive, especially when we're praying for other people. It's hard to find a selfish motive in asking for something on the behalf of, of someone else, or whether it's your kids or your spouse or your family or your friends, a loved one, a relative. And we still don't get what it is we're asking for, which leads us to the fourth question. God, can you use it? If at this moment, my unfulfilled longing is not going to be filled, God, will you use it? You'll notice here that he doesn't really address this idea of them not getting what they're asking for. He doesn't help them land the plane if they don't get their request because they're living in an environment where they are well acquainted with suffering. First century Christians living on the razor's edge between peace and persecution, life and death. They're scattered all over the world. We know that, these people that he's writing to from the very first verse. They're well acquainted with suffering. He doesn't need to tell them what to do when they don't get what they're asking for. In fact, that's how he starts this letter. Instead of ministering to them and, oh, hey, everything's gonna be okay and all of that, and I'm sorry that you're hurting, he starts his letter by saying, consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials. So right away, he's saying to them, you're gonna suffer. You're not always gonna get what you want. And when that happens to us, when our longing is not fulfilled, what we are saying is, God, will you use it? Will it be like the thorn in the flesh that you gave the Apostle Paul, which he writes about in Second Corinthians, which he asked for uh, to be removed three times. And each time, God said no. But God was gonna use it. He was gonna use it in his life. Was he gonna use it in someone else's life? And it reminds us, when we don't get the immediate yes, oh yeah, God is sovereign. You know, that's not a word that we use a lot. We I can't remember the last time I sang a song in this church or any church, really, where we use the word sovereign, the idea that God is in control of everything, but he is. And when I don't get what I want, when my longing goes unfulfilled, it reminds me, God, you are in charge and your ways are higher than my ways and your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And, but everything is in your hands and, and that gives me trust. I trust you, God, because I know you're sovereign even with this unfilled longing. But that feels vulnerable, doesn't it? Because we're saying, God, you may not give this to me and I am powerless to give it to myself. It means I may just go unfulfilled. 
But then the cross of Jesus reminds us in those moments that we are loved. Yeah, God is sovereign, but we are loved. Because we want a strong theology of yes. We do. When we're asking God, we want a strong theology of yes. We have a mountain's worth of evidence in the scripture that when we pray, God reacts. He moves, he does things, he delivers. A ton of evidence in the word of God that should give us enough expectation that this thing that I'm asking you for, that I believe you can say yes, and that you do say yes. Some of you have been fooled into thinking that God's favorite word is no. It's not. Loves to say yes. And all you have to do is read the scripture to prove that. We want a strong theology of yes, but it's hard. I mean, it's hard for even people in the Bible. You remember in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter is in prison because the king has figured out that people cheer when Christians are killed. And, and so he arrests Peter and he, Peter's hours are ticking down. He's gonna be beheaded. It's over for Peter. And so the church in that city begins to pray. They begin to pray. They're meeting in a home. They're praying, they're praying, they're praying under the secrecy of night because their lives are in jeopardy and they're praying, praying, praying. Well, an angel comes into prison and opens up the cell door for Peter and unlooses his chains and Peter is led outside the city and he gets outside the city and then he dawns on him that, oh, I'm not dreaming, this is real and I'm free. And so he goes and finds those people who are huddled together praying in the house and he goes and he knocks on the door and a young woman comes and opens the door and immediately shuts the door because she thinks that she's seen a ghost. Now they've been praying that Peter would be released from prison. They've been praying that a miracle would happen but when the miracle did happen, there was no strong theology of yes. So they just assumed we're asking for this thing, but it's probably not gonna happen. And how many of our prayers have that tagline on it? I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking. It's probably not gonna happen, but I'm supposed to ask. So I'm asking, I'm asking, I'm asking. But we need a strong theology of yes. We shouldn't be surprised when God gives us the things that we're asking for. Hey, but we also want a strong theology of I don't know. Like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. He's a friend of Jesus. Not like a, a met him one time, got his autograph kind of friend, but Jesus had been in his home. Jesus had shared meals with him. Mary and Martha, the sisters, send word to Jesus. A different part of the country. Hey, Lazarus, whom you love, sick. Subtext, come on, come do what you do. Come say yes, come heal him, come do your thing. Seen you do it in lots of other people's lives and you didn't even know those lives. They were, they were total, total strangers. Do it now for your friend who you love so much. And the Bible says Jesus waits two days. In fact, he waits till Lazarus dies. But eventually he does come to Bethany and stands outside of Lazarus' tomb and says, Lazarus, come on out. But in the middle, I don't know. Is Jesus gonna come? I don't know. Is he, did he hear our request? I don't know. What's taking him so long? I don't know. Do you have a strong enough theology for I don't know? Is the sovereignty of God and the love of God so clear in your life that you can weather the I don't know? Because most of us are living in that moment right now. I got a longing, I got a desire and it's been unmet so far. Is it gonna be met? I don't know. And here's where 
good, strong theology of I don't know comes in. I don't know, but I'm gonna be fine. I don't know, but I'm gonna make it. Am I ever gonna get married? I don't know, but I'm gonna be fine. Am I gonna lose my job? I don't know, but I'm gonna make it. Is my marriage gonna be able to glue itself back together by the power of the blood of Jesus? I don't know, but I'm gonna keep persevering. Are my kids gonna turn out right? They're gonna love Jesus. I don't know, but I'm gonna make it. Are they gonna come back to faith? Is my friend that I love so much, is he gonna come home? He's been a prodigal for so long. I don't know, but I'm gonna be fine. Theology of I don't know. And we also need a strong theology of no. Because to some of us, to all of us at one point or another, that unfulfilled desire is gonna be met with a no. You remember John the Baptist? He was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the prophet that God sent ahead to prepare the way. It came at great cost to John the Baptist. He had to live out in the wilderness. He didn't have a home, didn't have an apartment, didn't have friends, lived out in the wilderness. And he was a wild man. He wore animal skins and he ate locusts and honey and just out there because that's what God had asked him to do. And even more than that, when Jesus began to step into his public ministry, people began to leave John the Baptist. They were no longer his disciples. They actually now became disciples of Jesus. Instead of going to hear John the Baptist teach, they went and heard Jesus teach. And somebody came to John the Baptist and they said, hey, doesn't that bug you? Doesn't that bug you that everybody's leaving your church and going to this church over here? And he goes, no, because Jesus has to increase and I have to decrease. Such beautiful religious words, pain in the heart of a man and woman, I assume, to say, my time is over. My spotlight is over. My best days are behind me because his best days are in front of him. That's great personal cost. And a little bit later than that, John the Baptist ended up in prison, death row, said the right thing to the right people and they got mad about it. And so they imprisoned him and he's gonna lose his head. And so he sends word to Jesus. Jesus, who was his relative, by the way, who he prepared the way for, who he gladly said, you, you get bigger and I'll get smaller here. You take these people that I love and I care about and follow me, you take them and let them follow you. And he sends word to Jesus, I'm in prison, I'm on death row. Come. And the answer back to John the Baptist was, I'm not coming. Can you imagine what that was like? I'm not coming. And that word's gonna come to you at some point or another. Man, that dream in your heart, I'm not coming. That prayer that you've been asking for, I'm not coming. God, I need this. I need this. I can't go one more day without it. I'm not coming. How do I know that's coming to you and that's coming to me? Because it came to Jesus. Jesus got a no. So we don't know that, but he did. Remember after the Last Supper, celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, kind of their last moment together before the resurrection. And 
They leave the upper room and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus would go there often. That's how Judas knows where to find Jesus on that night because that was a place Jesus went regularly to pray. And so they get into the garden, which you can imagine kind of a forest, an organized forest. And he leaves most of his disciples here and he says, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. And he takes Peter, James, and John a little bit deeper into the woods there. And he says, pray for me, pray for me, pray for me. And then he goes on by himself into the deepest part of the woods there. And he begins to pray and the scripture paints a beautiful picture for us, just the anguish that's falling on Jesus and the pain because he knows right at that moment, Judas has assembled and is leading a charge of men coming with lanterns and torches and clubs and swords and they're coming like a mob for him and he's gonna be arrested there and tried and convicted and beaten and crucified. He knows all of this is coming. At the same time, your sin, my sin, the sin of humanity is falling on his shoulders and he's in such pain that he's actually sweating drops of blood. And in the middle of that anguish, he says, Father, not dear God, not bless me, not vague, not bland, not deity out there, not great architect in the sky, but Father, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Let's do it a different way. Please, please, is there any other way? And the answer was no. There was no yes from heaven. The answer was I'm not coming. So I know I'm loved when it's my turn to drink the cup because Jesus had to drink the cup. Because Jesus got a no. When I get a no, I know it doesn't mean that God doesn't love me. It doesn't mean that God doesn't favor me. It doesn't mean that I've done something wrong. It doesn't mean that I'm not righteous. It doesn't mean that I didn't string the right phrases together in prayer just because it's my turn to drink the cup but because Jesus drank his cup. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. I know two things. When it's my turn, God, you are sovereign and I don't understand, but I know I'm loved. Therefore, when my desire is unmet and my longing is unfulfilled, I don't need to act out. I don't need to pick fights. I don't need to take it out on somebody else. I don't need to cause division. I don't need to cause strife. I don't need to quarrel. I don't need to fight because I've got a strong theology of yes. And he says yes a lot. And I've got a strong theology of, I don't know, but I'm gonna make it. And I've even got a strong theology of no, I'm not coming. I can live with either one of those because Jesus drank the cup, I can drink the cup too. So I'm not gonna take it out on you and you're not gonna take it out on me. I'm just gonna take it. Just gonna drink it and know that the cup will pass and the resurrection will come. So God, we ask that you would give us a strong sense of your presence when you're saying yes and when you're saying maybe and when you're saying no. That we would know that you're near, that we've not been forsaken, that we're not on the outside looking in that in your sovereign plan where I am totally loved, this is just a cup I have to drink in this moment. So God, we trust you and we look to Jesus for our comfort. Jesus, thank you for modeling 
what answered prayer looks like and what unanswered prayer looks like. And we follow you all the way to either place, to the heights or to the depths. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen, why don't you stand to your feet. We're gonna finish our service with a time of prayer as we do every week. And, and if you were here last week, just the prayer time was off the charts. And thanks to Derek for leading us so beautifully through that. And sometimes it's tempting after a Sunday like that where we're just as just presence is so, so much here and even have Paul just giving a testimony of what God did in that moment to be like, well, maybe like the last Sunday was the Sunday that prayers got answered. And this Sunday is like the B team. This is the minor league of prayers, but God doesn't work like that. He never has a cap. He never has any limitations that he doesn't put on himself. And he was available last week, man. He's available this week. And so we're gonna pray. And here's what I wanna encourage you. If there's anything stirring in your heart, just anything, come and pray. If you're sick, come and pray. If you're burdened, come and pray. If you pray for somebody else, come and pray. But if, if you realize some unfulfilled longing in my heart has turned into something pretty unhealthy, we used to use the word repent, but uh, we don't use that word anymore. We soften the language up with change and stop and do better. But maybe that's what you need to do. You've sown some seeds of gossip and slander and division and you have weapons in your hands right now. You don't even know how they got there, but there they are. And you need to turn from that today. You need to repent. I promise you, you're not gonna put those weapons down on your, your own power. So you need to come and pray. God, I turn from that. And you just say to this person, help me. I need to turn. You don't need the whole story. You don't have to confess all your sin, but I gotta turn, I gotta change. They'll start praying immediately. Have you asked God? Have you asked? Maybe you've not asked, or maybe you've asked in such a bland and flavorless way. Maybe you've only asked in an emergency and you've not made a genuine request. Ask. And maybe you know in your heart that for whatever reason, you're living in an I don't know moment or you're living in a no moment and you're trying to come to grips with it and it's super hard. Come and pray. Come and pray for the endurance to endure both. You are gonna make it, but you're probably not gonna make it without prayer and without the prayers of the saints coming alongside of you. So whatever God's putting in your heart, God, we pray together now. There's nothing more holy than what we're doing here. We've talked about you, we've talked about the truth, and now we're applying that truth by asking you directly together, the brothers and sisters that we love as a family. So answer these prayers in Jesus' name.